Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. Our speaker today is Joel Stepanek. Joel is the Resource Development Director for Life Teen International, where he creates engaging youth ministry resources for middle school youth and high school students. Joel is a sought-after speaker who has traveled the world speaking to teenagers and young adults. He's the author of two books, True North, A Roadmap for Discernment, and the greatest job on the earth, the seven virtues of an awesome youth minister. Scott's got five of them. Oh, just kidding. Joel spoke to World Youth Day in Pol Poland with thousands of young people, Pope Francis. Joel has a master's degree in religious education with an emphasis in youth and young adult ministry from Fordham University in New York. Joel is married and he has two children. And without further ado, here is our speaker for today, Joel Stepanek. Joel, welcome to St. Patrick. <laughs> Hi, it's great to be with you this morning. It's always, I'm going to be honest with you, it's a little intimidating to be in a room with so much collective wisdom and knowledge and to just be a 32-year-old with a couple of kids. I know that some of you are like, I got kids in college, and I'm like, my kids still like have dirty diapers, and I don't know anything about anything. Uh, so Father's homily was important for me this morning. It made me feel a little bit better by not knowing a whole lot. Several years ago, I was a college student. And I was reflecting on that experience of sitting down with my parents in school. And, and Kevin goes through my bio, and that's fun. It's always a little weird to hear somebody read your bio, words that you wrote down to kind of say, hey, this is my life experience. But I was especially mindful today at Mass, for whatever reason, of where my life might be if decisions were made differently when I was in college. You see, I didn't go into school wanting to be in ministry or work in the church. I went to a youth group in high school. That was great. I actually volunteered with a youth group when I was a college student in high school, and that was great. But I was in school for medicine. Uh, I went and through the process of decision-making that every college student goes through, what is my upper level of intellectual ability, what degrees are available to me, and how much money will it help me make? Those are my three criteria for picking a major. So that landed me in pre-medicine athletic training, both good things. My goal was to be an orthopedic surgeon. I wanted to do uh, sports medicine and help older folks with hip replacements, knee replacements. That stuff excited me. I had a job at a physical therapy clinic with a couple of great physical therapists who were connected with a couple of great orthopedic surgeons. And I go and I actually remember my first observed surgery. And I know some of you maybe in here are in medicine, so the operating room is no uh, strange place to you. It was my first time there. And I went at 7.30 in the morning as a college student, on a Saturday morning, I wasn't in great state to be in an operating room at 7.30 on a Saturday morning. Yet there I was, and I'm excited, and I scrub in, and you know, given that I'd woken up a little bit late, I had no breakfast, and so, man, it's intense in there. People are running around, there's all these containers, I'm like, there's going to be blood in that pretty soon. And a nurse is standing next to me, and she's just kind of walking me through what they're doing. And Dr. Mejia sits down, and there's just an arm out covered in a tarp, so it's just this limb, because they're going to do surgery on the elbow. And the doctor's making incision marks with his marker. And he picked up the knife. <laughs> I got really dizzy. <laughs> And the nurse looked at me, she's like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm, and then I was falling backwards. And the next moment, I'm out in the hallway, and I uh, said, have you eaten anything this morning? I was like, no, but I drank a little bit last night. 
So they pulled me out and gave me a Sprite. I went back eventually. I did observe a couple of other surgeries and was on a path for success to medicine. But something wasn't right with that plan. I was anxious. I was nervous. I was stressed out. I got no joy from what I did. Even as my grades came in very high, my spirit felt very low. And so I did something contradictory to what you're supposed to do as a college student. I switched majors to religious studies. And in the conversation I had with my parents, they asked, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> and I said, I really feel like God's calling me into something different. I think he wants me to be a youth minister. I think he wants me to serve the church. To which my mom shakily said, how much money does that make? And me, I'm excited, I'm 20, I'm like, I don't know, maybe nothing, it's mission work, mom. How did I get there? It's interesting because at that point in my life, I went through a process that I didn't quite understand that we call discernment. It's the art of listening to God's will and God's word in your life. And it's not just about making big decisions. In the church, sometimes you talk about discernment as a person discerning the priesthood or the diaconate, a person discerning marriage or maybe discerning big life choices. And for some people in this room, some of those big life choices have been made. For some of us in this room, we're at a place in our lives where we're enjoying the fruits of a lot of hard work. And we might say, well, what role does discernment play in my existence? Within this room, there's the capacity to change the world. There's this story that Jesus tells. It's a story of two brothers who hate their father. You know it as the story of the prodigal son. Old scholars used to call it the story of two brothers. I'll paraphrase. It's in Luke 15, if you want to go back and do a scripture study with it. We know the story of the younger brother. He says to his father, I want my inheritance. He leaves. He winds up destitute. He winds up actually lower than low. When we read the scripture, it says that he found himself wanting to feed on the pods that the swine were eating. Now, to us, we're like, wow, that's unclean and dirty. But to a Jewish audience, that's offensive. Pigs are an unclean animal. So to say he wanted to eat the food of an unclean animal that he had found himself tending, that's like lower than low. That's rock bottom. And we know the story. He goes back to the father. He apologizes. There's a big party. Everybody's happy. Then there's the older son who's upset. And the older son says, I've worked with you all these years. I've followed, you. I've followed your directions. I've been in your house, and you've never given me anything. Now that older son had just as much disrespect for his dad as the younger did. Here's why. If his heart had really been conformed to his father, if he really loved his father, he would have seen the agony on his dad's face every single morning when he woke up looking out the front door and wondering, will my younger son come home? He would have felt the sting of rejection rather than looking for the opportunity to make a name for himself, to ingratiate himself to the father by doing all the right things. You see, the older brother never knew his father's heart. Now, he did all the right things. He did the chores, he did the work, he fulfilled the obligations. But his disposition was far from his dad. This morning, as we talk about spiritual discernment, as guys, it's difficult because we want to do things. Even being married only five years, I know that when my wife says she's sad or upset about something, the first thing for me to do is to not look at her and be like, how can I fix that? 
It's to say, that is so hard. I am so sorry. I'm not trying to fix anything, though I really want to. <laughs> the solution's so easy! That is terrible she said those things. Mm. <laughs> You're laughing because you know. Uh, it took a couple of years to figure that out. Oh, she doesn't want me to fix it right away. She just wants me to say, that sucks. Do you want some wine? Yes, here we go. <laughs> here we go, I got your whole box right there. It's about, sometimes we want to find, okay, what's the path? What are the right things that I need to do? And I want to give you some of the practical information from my study of a particular saint named St. Ignatius. But this is not necessarily about making all of the big decisions. It's about having a heart that is ready to listen to God's voice in all circumstances and situations. What the world needs now are men who have hearts that listen to and understand God's message and God's direction at any moment and at all times. Within this room, there's the capacity to change the world. You may look at society and we recognize that the ills that we face a lot of the times are resulting from men who have simply lost their way, whose hearts are far from God. And that happens both inside and outside of the church. It's just as easy for somebody who appears to be religious to go through the motions, to look holy, to do all the right things, but to be far from God. And we know how destructive that can actually be in so many situations, especially with people who appear pious but whose hearts are not conformed to who God is. So this morning is about learning spiritual discernment and some real basic principles. These come from a guy named St. Ignatius. He's a manly saint because he came to his conversion after being hit in the leg with a cannonball. I don't know how many times that happens to you. <laughs> but it happened during a battle. St. Ignatius is fighting. He was such a brave and courageous leader that against all odds, his men kept fighting, even though defeat looked imminent because of how brave he was. So it was only when he took that cannonball to the leg that his men surrendered. So said, well, Ignatius just got hit in the leg with a cannonball. Just wave the white flag. As he recovered, he didn't have a lot of time to do much except for read. So he read scriptures, the lives of the saints, and the life of Christ. And it was through those moments that he had a major conversion. And Ignatius started to think as he formed other people, how can we better listen to God's movements in our lives? So he put together a book called Spiritual Exercises. Spiritual Exercises is actually a four-week retreat that if you've got 30 free days in your life and you feel like being quiet for that long, you can go ahead and do that. Or you can pick up Spiritual Exercises and read it as just kind of a personal retreat. Within that book, there's what he calls 14 Rules for First Week Discernment. And they're really practical things that we can apply to understanding and hearing God's voice in our life. So here's how it works. If you want to be a great man, if you want to change the world, and I believe that we do, I don't think anybody in this room looks at our world today and is like, yeah, I'm fine with letting everything just kind of fall apart. That seems good for me, for my kids, for my community. It starts in here with our disposition. So the first place we need to ask is what's the point of any of this? L literally any of this. Simply put, to get to heaven, right? Why are we here today? Why do we pray? Why do we go to Mass? Why do we receive the sacraments? Why do we seek grace? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for the ungodly. Our goal is heaven. I'll give you a couple questions, not to reflect on at your table because we're men and 
we don't necessarily do things like that. <laughs> Just internally, what's your driving goal? Everybody has one. Everybody has a thing that we orient all of our lives toward. Now, at first, you might be saying, well, heaven, getting to heaven. But let's take an honest stock of ourselves. That's not always my main goal. And my main goal isn't an unvirtuous thing all of the time. Sometimes my main goal is to be a provider for my family. I want to make sure they're taken care of and they have enough. Sometimes my main goal is my own success. Sometimes my main goal is my health. What is your main goal? See, those aren't bad things. But if they're, not, they're connect, if they're not connected to the big thing, they can quickly take me off track. So the first step is understanding that our, our main goal is to get to heaven. And everything else is subject under that, even the good things. Now, the next question, and we get into the rules, are, is your life pointed towards heaven? St. Ignatius gives these first two rules, and they're really, really important for guys. There's 14 rules. We're not going to go through all of them. I've distilled them into three big chunks. Here's the first one. Ask yourself, if you want to hear God's voice, where are you headed right now? Where is your life directed towards? The very first rule that Ignatius gives is basically this. It's a paraphrase. If your life is not directed towards God, but is instead directed towards sin, you will never accurately hear the voice of God. You may accidentally stumble upon it, but if you want to say, well, I, I really want to figure out my way, it's like walking away from a light towards a dark room. Now, God's voice is still present in your life, but its main goal in your life at that point, the goal of the Holy Spirit, is to say, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around. Sin is bad. Turn around, turn around, turn around. It gets kind of annoying, biting on our conscience. Because God desires you to be saved. And so when we turn around, God says, all I need from you right now is just repentance. Turn around, conversion. Meanwhile, the voice of what St. Ignatius says is the enemy, which we could say is Satan, we could say is the devil, we could say is other people in our life who are negative influences, is like, you're fine, you're good. This is great, keep going towards the darkness. So if your life is caught in any sort of major sin or sinful habits or inclinations, those things are going to hinder God's ability to work in your life. Now, I speak all over the place, and there are some things that are main points of conflict in a man's life. And they're kind of universal across the board. Things like greed, anger, lust. Those are actually the three big ones. And a lot of guys are angry for all kinds of reasons. Angry at my ex-wife. I'm angry at my dad. I'm angry at this person at work. And it's not the kind of anger that, like, flares up sometimes and then we're able to push down. It's the kind of anger that becomes a furnace that burns everything we do. Some guys really wrestle with lust. They struggle with an internet addiction. They wrestle with maybe inappropriate relationships they have in their life. And no man is immune to this, especially in our day and age. And some of us wrestle with greed. How much can I have? How much can I amass at the expense of other people? And maybe it started as a good desire. I want to provide for my family. I want to give my kids a future. And then it turned into everything that I need to do is about consumption. I say those things because we have to call them out. We have to root them out so we can turn around. And then once we turn around, we can start to listen more ardently to what God wants out of our life. Now, again, this doesn't mean you've completely overcome the sin. I really want to make that distinction. It's the fact that I'm seeking and struggling and striving to overcome it. It's the difference between someone who says, I'm fine, and the room's burning down, and someone who says, I need to find a way out of this room. They're two different people. 
One of them is stuck, and one of them is struggling. So I want to challenge you to struggle. I don't want you to misinterpret as, well, if I'm wrestling with any sort of sin, if I'm not perfect, then God can't work in my life. Absolutely not true. But once we turn around and we say, I'm going to strive, I'm going to start to struggle, I'm going to fight against that sin, and, and when it comes back up, I'm going to recognize it, run to reconciliation. When it comes back up, I'm going to recognize it and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to pray for grace. I'm going to do something with God's help. Then we can start to listen to what God wants out of our lives. What direction are you headed right now? After that, there's some certain things that well up in us, certain moments we have. There's two main spiritual moments. One is called consolation, one's called desolation. I don't know if you've heard those terms before, but they're pretty important. They're affective movements. They're things that we feel or we sense. Consolation is a positive spiritual feeling. So when, we, when we're in a moment of consolation, our love for God's inflamed. It's those moments, maybe you've been on a retreat or after a Bible study, that you just leave and you're like, wow, like, God is good. I'm excited. I feel like my love for God is good. And, and in fact, anytime I love anything else, it directs back to the love of God. I look at my kids. I look at my grandkids. I look at my wife. And I think to myself, I love them so much. And I love God so much for bringing them into my life. Do you see there's a connection? I, I love the work that I do. I love the job that I have. Praise God that he allowed me to have that job. Maybe you've talked to people like that. That's consolation. Maybe you've had a moment where you've reflected on Good Friday about the passion, about Jesus' death and resurrection for you, and actually maybe has even moved you to tears. I don't know about you. I don't cry often. Uh, when I do, it's a very ugly, unattractive cry. So I try to do it alone. <laughs> and when I have enough space to, like, recover. Maybe you've had a moment like that where, where thinking about Jesus' death for you leads you to tears. It's fun. When I was seven years old, I had an experience like that. I remember it so distinctly. I was laying in bed. It was after Good Friday, and I just thought the fact that like, Jesus died for me. And I cried. I had no clue what was going on. And then 20 years later, I'm reading Ignatius. I'm like, oh, that was a moment of spiritual consolation. It relates back to the love of God. And the final thing is you're in a moment of consolation if your faith, your hope, and your love is increased. Those three theological virtues. Those are big moments. Spiritual consolation happens when our lives are directed towards God, when we're striving to be free of sin, when we're seeking to live in a state of grace. Consolation is when we can start to hear God speak to us. And again, it happens in moments not in these clear, booming, do this, do that. But you start to trust your gut, your spiritual gut, if that makes sense. As you're walking by and you see a person who needs some money to say, I feel like I really need to stop and pray with this person. I don't know what it is. I don't, maybe you've had moments like that. I don't know what it is, but right now I feel like I need to do this. Or you've been talking to a friend, you're like, I don't know what, I need to invite him to that men's breakfast. I don't know what's come over me, but, but I need to say this. Or that moment you feel that, that sudden pull to call that friend you've never really talked to for the past couple years, and you do, and it's like the perfect moment. We live in a spiritual world, and these are spiritual realities that can happen. But we have to be in sync with who God is and what he wants. In moments of spiritual consolation, sometimes we're able to really pray through the big things. Do I want to retire this year, or, or do I want to work a few more years and earn a little bit more money so that I can help my kids with college? Do I want to, do I want to switch careers right now? Should we move my family across the country? See, in a moment of consolation where we're in tune with God, 
those decisions, we start to pray and make them a little bit easier because our hearts are conformed and directed to who he is. So there's a couple moments. Maybe you find yourself in a place of spiritual consolation right now. Your prayer is good. It comes easy. Sometimes there's temptations away from it, but you always feel strong in the Lord with that. You find yourself thinking again, as you love things of this world, they're all directed back towards God. And maybe you feel like right now in your life, your faith is strong. Your hope in the Lord, even in the the darkness and trials of our world is good. And you just find your love welling up for God and for others. That's consolation. Here's how to treat those moments. One, be humble. You are not the one giving it to yourself. It's a grace. Humility is key. Gratitude is key. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this moment of confidence. Thank you for loving me. And the second is to remember that there's a second spiritual movement called desolation. And to remember in this moment of consolation that there's a God, he is good, and he has good things planned for you. So there's this second spiritual movement, desolation. A lot of people get this one confused because in desolation they think, oh, that's a bad thing. It's also movement given by God. In desolation, we might feel far from God. Our prayer life dries up. We might even start to feel apathetic. I was once really excited about going to Mass every single day. After the men's breakfast, I said, I'm going to go to daily Mass, or I'm going to read Scripture every day, but now it's just boring. I just don't care. I'm tired. That signals a movement of desolation. It's given by God. It's different than if you slip back into a state of habitual sin and you're not striving to get over it anymore. That's different. And it's important to make that distinction because we treat those things differently. So if you find yourself struggling back with those habitual sins, you've gotten lazy in your spiritual practices, then it's time to go back and seek forgiveness. But if you're like, I'm not doing anything different, that's what's so frustrating about desolation for people, whether you're a teenager or whether you are 90, is I'm not doing anything wrong, God. I didn't do anything to bring on this spiritual desolation or this spiritual dryness. And this is where a lot of good people actually wind up falling away from the faith. It's where a lot of people who go on the men's retreat or they go on the weekend retreat or they go to the conference, they leave with that feeling of of, of being in consolation, of feeling inflamed with God, and then three or four months later, they're like, I just don't feel it anymore. And because we don't, as men who are leaders sometimes, understand this movement, we don't always know what to say. We don't even always know how to deal with it ourselves. And we do one of two things. We then either fall into, well, I'm just going to kind of be apathetic to it. I fall away from the faith. Or we go back into, all right, like what's my rigid, you know, ritualism? I'll just go through the motions. I won't seek to know God's heart anymore. I'll just go through the motions and do all the right things. Desolation is a movement that God gives us to grow. If you've got children, you know that one way that you help them grow is by pushing them, by challenging them, by identifying areas maybe they're getting spoiled and nipping that in the bud, right? God helps us grow in the same way. As God's sons, God wants us to grow and be strong. And so at any moment of life, there's moments where we're going to find ourselves in desolation. And there's a couple of reasons why this can happen. One, St. Ignatius says it's because we become lazy. We start to think, oh, like, this is just a given. Like, my relationship, God's always going to love me. It's great. And that's true. God's always going to love you. But think about it in terms of like a marriage, if some of you are married. My wife's always going to love me, so there's no point in me trying. Get that on lockdown. Now, in a human relationship, that can cause her love to diminish. 
but it's also causing our love to diminish. In the divine relationship, God's love never diminishes, but that mentality does something to us. It lowers our capacity to receive God's love. So when we become lazy, God shakes us out of it and says, hey, just a reminder, on your own, you can do nothing. Don't be lazy about your spiritual practices. Come back to me. Return to me with your whole heart. So that's one reason we might find ourselves in desolation. So if you find yourself in a place like that now or ever, ask yourself, have I become lazy with my spiritual practices? After the men's retreat, when I, when I made the resolution to read scripture every day, have I become lazy in that practice? Have I become lazy when I go to Mass? I used to go to Mass and be so intentional about listening to the readings and really paying attention during the homily and trying to find that one thing that God was trying to speak to me. And now I just kind of go through the motions and, and try to do, you know, I just try to get through it. That might be one thing that we can combat by then stepping up our intensity with our prayer and saying, okay, like I become apathetic, now I become a little bit more intense with it. I made a resolution after that retreat to read scripture. I've fallen out of it, but now I'm going to go back. I'm going to look at my calendar in the first 20 minutes of every day, the first fruits, that's sacred scripture time. And it's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. I was sharing with Scott that I've started doing CrossFit. I'm not entirely sure why I pay people money to do what they do to me every single morning at that workout program. But I happily do it. But they push me, even when it's hard, because I know that it's helping me grow. So sometimes this might mean doing things that are hard, but that help us grow. The second reason why you might find yourself in a place of spiritual desolation is not even because you become lazy, but because God's like, all right, it's time to test your faith and help bring you to the next level. None of us in here have achieved perfection. That's a really good thing. I don't want to be perfect this side of heaven. I want God to help me grow. I don't want him to say, oh, good, you're a finished product. I'll move on to the next thing. As, as silly as this sounds, my sinfulness allows me to absorb God's attention. I kind of like that. I don't like my sin, but I'll embrace it because of the grace that God gives me through it. So sometimes God tests us and says, all right, like, you're doing well. You're doing really good. Now it's time to move to the next step. Can you continue to strive after me even when it doesn't feel good? Can you continue to seek me with your whole heart even when life is difficult? These moments of desolation come so that God can mold us and form us as disciples because sometimes life isn't great. But sometimes as men and as leaders and as fathers and grandfathers and bosses and, and people who have positions of leadership, even positions of influence with our friends, there are times that we need to be able to empathize with them when they say, I just don't feel anything in my faith. And to look at them as somebody they respect and say, I get that. I've been there. The Lord's brought me through that. You see, God needs to grow you as a man because the world needs what you offer as a leader. But it can't just be an experience of roses and sunshine. The third area that happens is quite simply that God wants us to grow in humility. So there's a test of, all right, like, can you do this without consolation? And then there's the, just remember that I give you all these things. I'm helping you grow. I'm the one that provides the grace. You see, as guys, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get prideful and start to think that the good things that I do are all me. Certainly, I cooperate with the good that God wants to do within me. So I don't want to reduce it to, you know, there's nothing good in me, I'm horrible, I'm depraved. Not at all. God created me. God created me good, and God gave me gifts and talents. But I also have to remember that God's God and I'm not. And that at the end of the day, I still need to rejoice and give great, uh, my grateful praise to a God who sustains me. So what do you do if you find yourself in a moment of desolation? Recognize that God has a purpose and a plan for it. Don't make any changes to your spiritual practices, but do intensify them. 
So that's not a time, if you find yourself in desolation, to do this, which is to swing the pendulum the opposite way and be like, oh man, like I'm in a, sp I'm a place of desolation. Okay, I need to add uh, an hour of sacred scripture every day, and I need to go to, to daily mass every day, and I need to start praying the rosary, all four sets of mysteries uh, every day, because like that'll help pull me out of it. That's, that's overtraining, and that's not a good thing. In fact, that's a trick the, the evil one might even use, or people who don't have the best intentions for us or inadvertently say that actually put us deeper into desolation. The next thing that you do is to be patient. If you're striving after God, there's going to be ups and downs. Consolation is going to return. We don't wind up stuck in a spiritual desert forever. Now, some people, well-meaning people in the faith, will say, well, Mother Teresa. St. Teresa was in spiritual desolation for years. She didn't feel God's presence for years. So, you know, you might too. I get that. St. Teresa was a great saint. I don't anticipate approaching her level of holiness anytime soon. So if someone's like, well, desolation, that's a, that could be a permanent thing. For most of us, 99.99% of us, it's probably not. God allowed St. Teresa of Calcutta to be in a prolonged state of desolation because her sanctity was so high, she could handle it. Mine's pretty low. <laughs> I'll admit that. I got a low threshold. God's working on me. Be patient, it returns. And have confidence that God has given you everything you need to endure. Desolation is not God removing his hand from you. That's key. It's God allowing you to feel what life is like separated from God's grace, but to not actually be separated from God's grace. You are never far from the one who created you. So have confidence in him. In all of these movements, there are two voices that Ignatius talks about, the good spirit and the bad spirit. And in the good spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about good voices and holy people in our lives. He's talking about the communion of saints that speaks into our world. The Holy Spirit's who we need to be connected to to be men who can make a difference in our world. Men who make a lasting difference. When he talks about the evil spirit, sometimes he's referring to Satan. Sometimes he's referring to people with bad intentions or evil intentions. Sometimes he's even referring to our own fallen human nature and our inclination to sin. And he identifies three ways. Here's where we get really practical. Three ways that the enemy makes its way into our lives. Here's number one. Now, if you go back and read Ignatius' stuff, I do want to give you this one caveat. With his 12th rule, 12, 13, and 14, he talks about how the enemy attacks us. Ignatius grew up in a certain time and place. And so his language and analogies sometimes reflect that. So rule 12 is the, the enemy is like an angry woman. So maybe don't use that analogy like around your wife or kids, you know. Like, as much as maybe you're like, I relate, I can, I totally get that. Uh, just I'll propose a different analogy. So if you go back and read Ignatius' first works, you pick it up like I would encourage you to do. You might be like, huh, that's not the analogy he used. There's a reason why. Um, essentially... The first way that we can be attacked is by the enemy acting, and if you've got kids, this, you'll, this one will stick too, acting like a spoiled toddler who gets everything they want. So what does a toddler do when they want something? They try to break your will by throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of a crowded supermarket. And I'm a good dad, but why are you making me look like I'm a horrible person? So they throw a temper tantrum. That's how, the, that's how the devil can rage at us. That's how the enemy can rage. So when we're doing well on our spiritual path, they see if they can bark loud to make us weak. It's the moment that we feel like that voice in our head is saying, everybody else, every other man you know, they're striving after success. They don't care if they've been married multiple times. They have no desire to do anything nice with their money but buy good things for themselves. 
Why aren't you doing that? And they kind of rage at us with these things. Sometimes that's even personified in other people we know. The person, your brother-in-law, maybe your actual family members who get in your face. Are you really following that Jesus thing? Really, that's what you're going to do. You're still like following the Lord. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's stupid. When those mo- Or all you're ever going to be is that addiction. That's the other one I come across with a lot of young men and, and men of all ages. You're never going to be anything other than your failed first marriage. You will never be anything other than your addiction to alcohol. You will never be anything, even if you've overcome it, I get that you went through a 12-step program. That doesn't matter. You're this. So how do we deal with that when the enemy rages at us in those ways? The same way you deal with a spoiled child. You stand your ground and you say no. No. But I really want the candy bar. Yeah, no. It's going to be a no for me. I'm strong in my God. Go back to sacred scripture. In fact, you can go online and just Google scripture about the power of God. Get those verses and put them up around your house. My wife is pulling me to holiness. She's got scripture passages all over all of our like, cabinets so that if I'm going to get a mug or I'm going to coffee, I read you know, what's up there, quotes from saints. Do that. Put stuff like that around your house. Remind yourself of the power of God because the enemy, whether it's another person, whether it's personified evil, whether it's our own fallen human nature wants to derail you and knock you off track. Remind yourself that you are powerful because it is not you but Christ who lives in you that can resist all things. The second way that the devil attacks us, St. Ignatius says it's like a hidden lover. Very sensual image from St. Ignatius. Somebody who's false in their relationships. And what does that thrive off of? Concealment, lies, fear. So in our lives, maybe we start to struggle with something. Maybe we struggle with a particular sin, or we're worried about a particular decision we're making, and we hide it. Again, in the worst, it's a sin. In the best, it's, man, I really feel like I need to take that new job. But I'm scared of seeking the counsel of other people because they might tell me not to. Fear and hiding our spiritual life from everybody is a great tactic that the enemy uses to knock us off track. Men need community. That's why this is so cool. The fact that we're all in one room and you've got brothers who support you and get where you're going, we need that. So what is the tactic of the enemy? To pull you off to become a lone wolf. Don't tell anybody about that struggle. They'll judge you. Don't take that to confession. You don't need a spiritual director to walk through these things. Don't talk with your best friend or your spouse about that decision you're going to make because they'll probably contradict what you really want. You see, those things can creep into all of our heads, and when they do, we become isolated, and it becomes really easy to knock us off our spiritual path. And then the last is look for weak points in your life. The devil, he says, is like a military commander that surveys a whole base and then looks for the weakest point at which to attack it. That's just good military strategy. But the enemy does the same thing. Where are our weak points? Where is that place in your life right now that you haven't given enough thought to and you become spiritually lazy? Where's that one area that it's really easy for you to fall into that one particular sin? Where's that place where that thought process starts that turns you into a person you don't like? At what drink do you become Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Like those are places that the enemy knows and uses them to knock us off our spiritual path. There's one particular parable that Jesus tells And to me, I've always thought, like, wow, that's so random and kind of depressing. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. 
Then, he says, I'll return to the house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And then it's over. <laughs> Every time I hear that parable, I'm like, wow, that's the little depression, Jesus. There's no like resolution here at all. What does the man do? He sweeps his house, he puts it in order, he never locks the door. There are times that we can go on a retreat, we can find ourselves in a spiritually good place, we can be in a moment of consolation, a moment of recovery, and we don't ever take a moment to look back and say, how did I fall into that state of sin? How did I wind up in that place of desolation? How did life get so messy right there? And we don't reflect because our lives are busy. So we sweep our house, we put it in order, we go to reconciliation, we receive grace, we go through a 12-step program, we go through reconciliation, we go through counseling, we do all these things, but we never look back and say, ah, do you know where things got screwed up? It got screwed up when I stopped talking to my wife every night for 10 minutes. It got screwed up when I didn't say no after the second drink. It got screwed up when I started to work every day after 5.30 just checking my emails instead of talking to my kids. You see, there's always this weak point, and that's where the attack starts. But if we don't identify it, the enemy comes back and uses it over and over and over again. So reflect, sweep your house, put it in order, and then go and lock the door. I believe that the capacity to change this world exists in this room. As men, we are in privileged positions. As husbands, fathers, grandfathers, leaders, brothers, sons, and every person, if our heart is conformed to God and what God wants for your life, you'll be ready to say the right thing at the right moment. You'll be ready to make the tough decisions when they come along. You'll be in a state of grace or a place of striving where God's able to say, let me speak to your heart. Because you're just not going through the motions, but you really want to feel and understand what I feel. And in that, there's not only great peace and great liberation, but the opportunity to become co-workers with Christ in the great work that he's doing in this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for calling us together as men, for guiding us in all that we do, for speaking to our hearts. Lord, show us the places that we need to resist temptation, sin. Lord, show us the places where we can find you and be consoled. Give us strength in moments of desolation. And remind us continually of our one goal, the big goal of being with you one day in heaven. And may, may we hear you say when that day comes, well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard my word. You've walked the path that I've set out for you. Come inherit. Come inherit eternal life. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.